Welcome back to Money Minutes for Doctors. Once again, I'm your host, and I have the pleasure of welcoming a brand new guest to our program, Josh Lance. How are you today, Josh? I am doing fantastic. Excited to talk to you, Christy, and one of my favorite topics today. We get to go through debts. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, it is the American way, right? We all have to have a little bit of debt. Specifically today, we're going to be focusing on student debt. So for better or for worse, the cost of education is rising. And unfortunately, that means for a lot of our students that they graduate from residency with a fair amount of debt. And I've invited you here today to talk a little bit about what that debt means, how to manage the debt, what are your options for repayment, and all sorts of insights that you can give us so that we are not completely saddled by this debt for the rest of our lives. Yeah, exactly. And something that's very important to know up front is that it's really, really common to have these debts. Um, And we're shocked a lot of times to realize that, you know, some of our residents and fellows uh, are feeling badly about the amount of debt that they have. It's very common to have three or four hundred thousand in student loans today. Unfortunately, I have to say that's been my experience. A little trivia question. What is the most student debt that you've ever heard reported? Oh, that's a tough one. But um, for a single individual, it was 740000 And for a married couple, it was over a million dollars. Ouch. That is so painful. But on average, we're seeing closer to, to three or 400000 but this can really range. It's painful, but there's solutions here too. And that's part of what we'll go through today. Perfect. So when people come to you and they disclose the amount of student debt that they have, what are some of the first questions that come to your mind? Yeah, it's really in today's world related to some of your career goals um, because there's options available, uh, say student loan forgiveness, that are going to be available for certain positions, but not others. Um, so, for example, if your career goals allow for you to work at a not-for-profit organization, we really need to take a look at public service loan forgiveness, or PSLF, uh, to see if that's a solution that's valuable for you. For another physician, maybe they're going to work in a for-profit setting. You know, their group contracts with a hospital, and so they're in a, a for-profit, and they need to look at doing something like refinancing their student loans. Excellent. So your employer is a big factor in determining how you tackle your student debt load. Huge factor. I think it might be helpful to explain public service loan forgiveness, the program, some of the pitfalls, and how someone goes about doing it effectively. I think that sounds great. What have you got for us, Josh? This program requires a few different things, but in a nutshell, what it allows for is forgiveness on federal direct loans if you work in a not-for-profit for a period of 10 years. Now, that's what most physicians know. There's some more granular details that you want to be aware of. Um, so one of those requirements is that you do an income-driven plan at a not for profit organization. So an income driven plan, there's several of those. Uh, The main ones are pay as you earn, repay, and IBR. So those are really common. And and basically what an income driven plan does is you pay a payment based on your income at the time. 
So for residents and fellows, it's going to be a small amount. And then for attendings, it's going to be a much larger amount. And it might go up each year based on if your income's going up. Is that percentage a fixed rate or is that variable depending on the terms of your PSLF agreement? Yeah, so those payments range, they are set in place. And so of those three I mentioned, pay as you earn, repay, and IBR, some are better for some physicians than others. You know, to keep it really simple, pay as you earn and repay are a 10% formula, meaning it's 10% of what the government considers your discretionary income. Now, they have a more complicated way of coming up with discretionary income, but let's keep it to 10%. IBR is a 15% formula. So you pay a little bit more and you have the tendency to have a little bit higher payments with IBR. Now, not everyone qualifies for pay-as-you-earn. So sometimes we have physicians that are stuck using IBR, even though it's a little bit higher of a payment. So, you know, it really ranges on your situation. Some people are going to be eligible for one program. Others are eligible for the other. Um, we've had doc couples where, you know, one of them does a different plan than the other, and you know, what's ultimately best is going to range on your circumstances, your projected income, where you plan to work, all those things are going to come into play. And so again, all of these loans that are eligible have to be federal student loans. So if for some reason you have a private loan as part of your student loan package, you could not use this program. Is that correct? That is correct. Private loans need to be dealt with separately. And sometimes we have doctors where they have some combination of two. They have some private loans and they also have some federal loans. And we might treat the federal loans completely different. Maybe they do public service loan forgiveness for those. Maybe they refinance the private loans. Um, but I want to go back to something you mentioned. It's not all federal loans that qualify for this forgiveness. To be specific, it's federal direct loans. So it's important uh, for all your listeners to review their loans if they're in this program and verify that the word direct appears in the loan title. Only those direct loans qualify for forgiveness. Now, if you don't have those and you are in this program, you'll need to consolidate to for federal direct loans. And then you can qualify for the program going forward, but it starts a new 10-year clock. Okay. So any of your federal loans, if it's at all possible, you want to consolidate into a federal direct student loan. Am I getting it? So that's something that you should definitely look at. Um, now, I, I always recommend people review that with a professional prior to making those changes. But in general, especially if you're starting off young, if you have some FFEL loans, uh, you know, loans like that that are federal, um, you might take a look at consolidating to a federal direct loan. And could you ever consolidate a private loan into a federal loan, or is that a no-go situation? That's a no-go, unfortunately. Those private loans are going to stay private. And there's all sorts of ways to deal with the private loans, uh, mainly refinancing, but they kind of have to stay in their own world. Okay. Now, when you sign up for a public student loan forgiveness program, is that always a standard 10-year term or is the term variable as well? 
Good question. So it's it's technically 120 payments or 10 years, and you don't have to do them in a row. So you could start it, pause it, pick it up again. As long as you complete 120 uh, qualified payments at a not-for-profit with federal direct loans, doing an income-driven plan, and one more catch, you have to fill out a certification form each year. Okay. But it sounds like pretty minimal requirements to be active within the program. Exactly. Exactly. Because the situation that I'm most familiar with is I hear the residents recognizing they have a rather large student loan debt burden and then actively seeking out a PSLF program very earlier in the residency such that their loan payments are relatively small. It sounds like that's a good approach. Would you agree? I agree. And especially while you're figuring out your options. So if you're in your training and you don't know exactly where you're going to end up, I think this program makes a lot of sense for you. And so making sure you have federal direct loans, enrolling in one of these income-driven plans is a good thing because it gives you options. And then at the end of your residency or fellowship, you can always switch it up. If you decide not to do public service loan forgiveness and you decide refinancing is a better choice, well, you can make that choice later, but you didn't forego that option because the moment you refinance any kind of student loan, uh, you've said goodbye essentially to uh, any kind of forgiveness. That's good to know. And so again, when you hit that 120 payment, then that means the remainder of your debt is just automatically erased? It was automatic. So at the end of the 10 years, you actually apply for the forgiveness. And the forgiveness is tax-free, which is a huge, huge benefit. And I, I should speak to that because sometimes there's some confusion there. Public service loan forgiveness is always tax-free, always tax-free. The Forgiveness that's not tax-free is if you do an income-driven plan for either 20 years or 25 years in a for-profit organization. That forgiveness is taxable. But that forgiveness hardly ever works out to be favorable for physicians. Uh, it does work out to be favorable to do public service loan forgiveness. So count on it being tax-free. Now, as far as applying for the forgiveness, Assuming you follow the rules correctly, at the end of the 10 years, you apply for the forgiveness, and then the, the government approves that, and then they pay out forgiveness. So have we gotten to the point where some of the initial enrollees in the PSLF programs are at maturity and have applied for forgiveness? Yes, we have. So this program started in 2007, so it's a 10-year program. So the first set of borrowers were eligible to receive forgiveness at the end of 2017. And yes, some borrowers received that. Um, and then, yes, some borrowers received forgiveness in 2018. And this is the, the law of the land right now. I know that sometimes there's some uh, confusion or there's concern about this program changing, and we should definitely talk about that. As of right now, you know, we should expect um, that borrowers, after they apply for forgiveness, uh, do end up receiving that on their federal direct loans. Well, that sounds like an absolute Christmas miracle for those borrowers. Definitely, because it could be hundreds of thousands that's forgiven at the end of the term. Can you give us an example of how this may benefit a doctor or a doctor couple? Yeah, definitely. So the way it benefits you is 
you know, you don't have to start a large payment while you're in your training. So let's say you've got a younger physician in their training. Their payments might only be three or $400 on a monthly basis to enroll in this program. Um, so you're in effect getting a subsidy of sorts on your payment. And then your payment's going to ratchet up as you become an attending and it's going to go up over time. And in some of the income-driven plans like pay-as-you-earn and IBR, your payment should not go any higher than your 10-year standard repayment. So they basically cap out the payments. And what that means is that as an attending, a couple years into becoming an attending, your income's probably going to be high enough that you reach that cap. So you pay the equivalent of a 10-year payment, and then you pay that out for the remaining years until you reach your 10 years. But if you did call it three, four, five years of payments while you're in your training, that means you only need to do, call it five years while you're in attending to get to your total of 10 years for your forgiveness. So it's it's basically giving you an indirect subsidy. And, and for a lot of our doctors, they end up paying you know, $100,000, $200,000 less um, doing a program like public service loan forgiveness versus if they just paid the loans off the old-fashioned way. Well, that sounds like an amazing benefit. And then when you talk about the tax portion, I think it does generate some confusion because people say, well, how do I owe taxes on a debt? But I suspect what you're talking about is the amount it, you're talking about the amount of income tax that would be paid on after tax income that would be used to finish off the payment of the debt am i understanding that well the irs if if something is forgiven traditionally it, it can be uh determined to be phantom income and phantom income can be taxable Um, So certain types of forgiveness definitely can be taxable. Um, It just so happens with public service loan forgiveness that they wrote it into the law that um, it would be tax-free upon the forgiveness. So you you get this big payout from the government for, you know, could be $100,000 or more, and then you don't have to pay taxes on that, assuming you did public service loan forgiveness. But I really, when I hear you talk about this, it sounds like your repayment planning for student loans actually starts way before your first payment is due. It almost sounds like you should be thinking about this in med school and and advocating to sign up for as many of the direct student loans that you possibly can. Is that something you would suggest? Absolutely. Absolutely. You want to start early. And and a lot of residents and fellows, you know, kind of want to put their head in the sand and think about financial stuff after they're making more money. But we really encourage, you know, doctors to be thinking about this stuff early, plan even in your medical school and plan in your residency to be doing these kind of things. It's going to save you tons and tons of money later on. Wow, that is amazing. So again, going back to when you're the med student, should you be advocating for as much direct student loans? And if so, how do you do that? Are they hard to qualify for? Is there any limit to the amount of direct student loan available to you? Can you answer that for us, Josh? Yeah, so you definitely want to advocate for federal direct loans. Um, 
But what you'll find is not everyone is always able to get loans the way they want. Um, so there's certain loan limits. If you reach those limits, sometimes borrowers have to go into the private marketplace um, to get like a loan from Wells Fargo or some kind of private lender, essentially. And the loan limits uh, vary depending on the type of loan. Most federal loans, if if not all, are federal direct loans going forward. Um, it was just loans in the past were not federal direct. Um, they were FFEL loans or certain types of Stafford loans. Um, and so I think that if you're a younger physician listening to this, um, the loans you're going to be eligible for are federal direct. Okay. And then when you're at a resident level and you're thinking about maybe signing up for the public student loan forgiveness program, how do you determine the type of repayment, what you mentioned before, the pay as you earn, the repay, those sorts of options? Yeah, definitely. So that's where I recommend speaking to a professional that works with this on a daily basis. Um, in general, though, pay as you earn tends to be the best um, because it keeps those payments the smallest. Pay as you earn also allows you to do some other cool features later on. It allows you to do things like file your tax return separately. Um, and the reason that borrowers might want to do that is because maybe they want to exclude their spouse's income because maybe you're a doc couple and you both earn a good income. And if you can exclude your spouse's income, well, that's going to make your payments much, much lower. Um, so anything that ends up making, you know, uh, your payments lower is going to, you know, improve this program for your circumstance. You're going to pay less into your student loans over time and thus maximize uh, the amount of forgiveness that you receive later on. As a generalized approach, I say, you know, pay as you earn if you're eligible for that. You definitely want to take a look at that. Uh, repay, everyone's eligible for repay. Um, so that's something that you can look at, but there's pros and cons. So repay, you can't file tax returns separately. Um, you always have to include your spouse's income when you're uh, enrolling and re-enrolling each year. Uh, and repay doesn't have a payment cap. So where pay-as-you-earn and IBR have payment caps where you're, you shouldn't pay more than your 10-year standard repayment, repay continues to go up and up. Um, so for physicians that expect to make a, a certain amount of money, it might be better to be in you know, one of these income-driven plans uh, than the other. So if, if you're going to make less, let's say you're in a more academic environment, um, maybe if you had the choice between repay and IBR, repay would be better um, because repay has that 10% formula, IBR has that 15% formula. Um, but in that circumstance where you plan to make less, maybe you never plan to hit make enough income to hit the payment cap. Um, and so therefore, you know, repay would be better in, in that circumstance because the caps to no advantage in, in that case. And there's all sorts of nuances between these different income-driven plans that are going to range, um, you know, based on your circumstances, what you plan to make um, in the future, what your spouse's income is. Oh, so it sounds like there's lots to think about. And as you pointed out earlier, this is best done 
in consultation with a professional who really understands the nuances of the program. Definitely. And you also want to work with someone that can anticipate what's going to happen in the future. I have a lot of physicians that we sit down with that have spoken to a guidance counselor, some kind of credit counselor, uh, maybe in med school, um, maybe in their residency. And that individual helped them for a snapshot uh, point in time. But they didn't anticipate things like, what if you get married and now you have to include your spouse's income? That might change which of these income-driven plans is more appropriate for you. Or what is your income going to be in the future based on your career goals? That might change which of these payment plans is better for you. Um, So there's all sorts of things that you need to anticipate both now and in the future to make sure to optimize this. And if you sign up for one of those categories, for example, young resident do not have a spouse or, or someone with significant income, you opt into the say pay as you earn option. Can you change that later? Or once you sign into that category, it's set for the duration of the loan forgiveness program? Yeah, all sorts of rules here. So you can change in certain circumstances, but that trips what's called capitalization. So capitalization is where your interest that's accrued on your student loans um, becomes a part of your principal balance. And so now interest that accrues in the future is going to be based on a larger amount. And so sometimes it makes sense to avoid any type of capitalization. Other circumstances, capitalization isn't that bad. Maybe there's not a lot of accrued interest. Maybe we don't care um, that there's going to be capitalization because they're they're pretty sure they're going to receive student loan forgiveness in the future, so it's not going to be a big deal. But capitalization is definitely something to consider when switching back and forth here. The other thing is you need a partial financial hardship uh, with pay as you earn in IBR, where repay, you don't need a partial financial hardship. So what that means, Christy, is that residents and fellows are going to qualify for a partial financial hardship based on government rules. And so they could switch around in their residency, but they wouldn't be able to switch around as an attending because they're not going to make um, you know, the certain limits to be able to do that. They're going to make too much money at that point. So it sounds like the partial financial hardship is really based on your income, or are there other factors that go into it as well? It's income-based, definitely. So pretty much all of our residents and fellows have always qualified for the partial financial hardship, so they could be switching uh, payment plans around, uh, where pretty much all of our attendings don't qualify for a partial financial hardship. Excellent. Have you ever seen a situation in where it does not make sense for someone with federal direct student loans to sign up for this public student loan forgiveness program? All the time. So sometimes it's because they have lower student loan balances. So this program works really well for the folks that have three, four hundred thousand. They know they're going to be a not for profit. All of that's really clear. But if you only have a hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand, you know, maybe even a little bit more than that, sometimes it makes more sense to simply refinance those loans. So you don't want to assume that one way or the other is best for you. You definitely want to have this kind of thing reviewed. Um, That's just going to be to your benefit to be able to pre-plan these decisions early on and figure out what's best for you. Excellent. 
And then I also think of the situation where a lot of the residencies are hosted in not-for-profit institutions. What happens if you graduated residency? So let me back up. You are enrolled in the public student loan forgiveness program while in residency, while working at a nonprofit. Now say you finish residency, you get your first job, and it's in a for-profit situation. How does that impact your public student loan forgiveness program? Yeah, in those cases, those positions might have 30 or 40 qualified payments towards their 120 that they need for forgiveness. Now, they cannot receive forgiveness if they continue onward at that for-profit employer. So a lot of them in those circumstances are going to look at refinancing at that stage because they're not going to qualify for the forgiveness. So refinancing is going to make more sense. And so basically how refinancing works is let's say you have a student loan that's costing you say 6.8% or something like that. You take this federal loan and you go shop it around. It's important to shop for the best rates. And you find a commercial private lender that's willing to give you a better rate. And then you lock in this better rate with this commercial lender for a certain term. And they make it in blocks of 5, 7, 10, 15, 20-year terms. Now, the shorter the term, the higher your payments are. The longer the term, the smaller the payments are because you're stretching it out over a longer period of time. But the higher the term, the higher the interest rates are for refinancing, where the shorter terms are going to have smaller interest rates. So that's a delicate balance. You want to pick the term that makes the most sense for your financial circumstance. And if I could point out some pitfalls here, a lot of people that are refinancing, they end up picking this very aggressive term. They want to get these loans done in five or seven years, something like that. And that's fantastic. We encourage it. But the challenge is that they pick way too aggressive of a term and then they have these huge minimum payments that they have to pay. And they they do this early on in life so they haven't anticipated future expenses like what happens when you have a few children? How do your expenses change? What's the cost of childcare? They they might be surprised at lear- to learn that childcare might be $2000 a month. Um, and suddenly they can't afford these monster student loan payments that they agreed to, you know, refinance to. Um, So those are important things that you want to consider when refinancing. Excellent. And it sounds like once you've refinanced, now your option to go back to the public student loan forgiveness program is null and void. Correct. So you want to be very careful that you weigh all of your options before making a switch like that. Have you ever seen a situation where someone is working in a non-for-profit during their residency enrolled in a PSLF program, then for a time period works for a for-profit institution, but ultimately ends up going back to a not-for-profit and resumes the PSLF program? Or is that just too nuanced to even think about? (laughs) Well, I have seen that. And so in some cases, we actually caution our physicians to to hold on before they refinance the loans in case they might go back. Because you never know with some of these early jobs. I mean, a lot of people switch around. They switch around often every few years. 
and so yeah very much what you described christy where they they are in a not-for-profit they have you know maybe 30 40 payments that are qualified um, they take a short stint at a for-profit and then come back to a not-for-profit and so they could continue onward and, and shoot for their 120 payments uh, to get their 10-year loan forgiveness you know in that circumstance that causes me to think that they probably haven't optimized the PSLF program if they're doing situations like that. But again, all of those are transition points and you just need to weigh your pros and cons before you make a decision moving forward. Yeah, definitely. And in general, uh, staying in public service loan forgiveness provides some flexibility. Sometimes it's worth giving up that flexibility. Um, but if you think there's a chance you're going to come back to a not-for-profit, it definitely can make some sense uh, to hang tight, stay in one of these programs. Okay. Because the other thing that it makes me think of with the steadiness is the term that I'll use of the healthcare industry right now, where you see a lot of hospitals that were traditionally not-for-profit now switching into a for-profit category. And I see a lot of anxiety that that causes within the resident population. Have you had any experience there or any guidance of what you should do if you're someone enrolled in a PSLF program employed by a not-for-profit employer who now, for whatever reason, the organization is being sold into a for-profit situation? Those individuals should definitely have a professional that does this all the time look at their situation and kind of figure out what's their best debt plan? What scenario is best for them? Should they pay it off using one of these uh, income-driven plans or should they refinance it? What you brought up, Christy, is very, very common. That's definitely a trend. Uh, we're seeing a lot of consolidation, a lot of groups um, you know, buy up uh, what was previously a not-for-profit. And so this is something that we could see. This this kind of points out something about protecting yourself, which is, you know, th there's always the chance that this program goes away and we should chat about that. But I want to talk about how do you protect yourself in the event that it does. So one thing that we highly suggest is creating a side fund. And what I mean by that is let's say your income-driven plan, even though you're paying, let's say, $500 a month, your 10-year standard repayment, what you would have paid the old-fashioned way, let's say is $3,000 per month. Well, in that circumstance, for an attending who can afford this, I would suggest setting aside $2,500 a month. You pay your $500 payment, you set aside $2,500. It's as if you're paying $3,000 a month. Now, if this program's modified, whether it's the government that does that or whether, you know, it's your career circumstance, uh, there's consolidation, something, something's bought up, you're no longer in a not-for-profit, then you're much more protected in that circumstance because the side account that's gathering this $2,500 a month gets larger and larger. In fact, you could invest it and it can grow faster too. And then if this doesn't work out in your favor, no problem. The, let's say the program changes. You take that $2,500 that's been accumulating, you turn it around, and you just plop it into your loans. And it's as if you were paying it into the loans all the way. That's a good way to protect yourself uh, in the event that this program changes somehow. Excellent. Well, I like the term, plop it into your student loans. 
<laughs> it would be nice if we all had large sums of cash that we could just put into our student loans. But it does raise an interesting point in that we need to be prepared for any changes. And one of the things that's always been on my mind is if you look at the overall debt of the U.S. government, it seems that by far and large that they may not be able to continue with this public student loan forgiveness for very long because they probably need the interest or the payments gained on student loan debt. Both the Obama and Trump administration's budget proposals put in proposals to alter public service loan forgiveness. And it's still the law of the land. We get this question a lot. Is this program going to be around you know, in the future? Is, is something going to change? Uh, well, there's a lot of positive signs. Um, so one of which is there was a bill introduced into Congress, which is called the PROSPER Act. And the PROSPER Act did not pass. But basically what it would have done is changed public service loan forgiveness. However, just for borrowers 2018 and beyond, meaning all the physicians that are currently using this around the country would be able to continue to use it, be grandfathered in, receive their forgiveness. But future borrowers, the med students of the world, essentially would need to go about paying off their loans in a different way that they'll define at a later point. Now, even though Prosper Act didn't pass, it kind of shared what a lot of politicians were thinking and how to address this going forward. So it really was a clue that they would grandfather um, physicians into this program today. And so that's a positive sign. addition, there have been people that have received public service loan forgiveness uh, since the end of 2017 and beyond. Um, the government created a loan application at the end of 2017 that was not in existence. Uh, the government has updated their website. Uh, the Department of Education has done that uh, to continue to encourage and sponsor um, you know, this program online. Um, some of the confusion that, that's come about, um, there's been some articles that have said things like, you know, only 1% of borrowers, you know, received this kind of forgiveness at the end of 2017. And, and when you dig into those articles, what you realize is that those borrowers that didn't receive the forgiveness, they might not have followed all the rules necessary to receive that. So they didn't have federal direct loans, for example, and they figured out years later they had FFEL loans. Well, you need 10 years of payments on a federal direct with a qualified plan for this to work. So it's very important to, to follow the rules that are outlined. Um, in addition, some of the loan servicers that when this program first started off, uh, they were kind of sloppy. And so they didn't track the number of qualified payments properly uh, for physicians and, or for borrowers in general, but it impacts physicians. And so where you think you might have 40 payments, in fact, when you dig into the numbers, the government might say you only have 32. So that's something I would encourage all your listeners to investigate is to track your own numbers. And if you notice something's wrong and you think you, you should have 50 some payments and you look at the numbers and it says you only have 30, make sure to appeal that and you know, track your records because you need those 120 to receive this forgiveness. Well, I'm glad you said that there's an appeals process because otherwise I could imagine, like you said, the physician or the borrower being on the very short end of that deal. 
Yeah, definitely. And expect that appeals process to take a while. And sometimes they're not going to come back in your favor, but maybe they count some extra payments that they weren't previously going to count, which is which would be great to recover. So definitely that that's probably the largest trend I'm seeing on a daily basis is um, those payments are just wrong. Um, they're off by five or 10, something like that. So definitely investigate those. Well, I guess when we think about what we learned in the mortgage crisis about sloppy record keeping, it isn't so surprising that it extends over into public student loans as well. Yes, definitely. Do you find the rules of the public student loan forgiveness programs pretty static or do they change year to year and that you actively need to be reviewing that information and making sure that you still qualify for the program? They're pretty static, but they've changed over the time of the program. So initially there were only a few income driven plans and then it evolved and repay came about. And so this is something to review every few years, but I don't see it as something that changes on a yearly basis. So I don't know about you folks, but I could hear Josh go on forever. However, given the amount of content to date, I'm going to break it up. So listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Once again, I'm your host, Christina McAteer, and we look forward for a part two next month. Take care. Get a good job with more pay than your own.